Welcome, 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 friends of the On The Way Home podcast. I'm your host, Michael Braithwaite from Blue Door, my team at Blue Door, which is just north of Toronto in York region, also operating a little bit in Durham and Peel, uh, do life-saving work helping our most vulnerable across the region uh, find affordable housing, get healthy, and find meaningful and well-paying employment. And we do that in partnership with our friends at the Canadian Alliance and Homelessness. Now, right now, the Canadian Alliance is pushing a campaign for a housing benefit. I urge you to check that out. Go to cah.ca. Uh, they make it really easy to put in a little bit of information. And from that, right away, they fire off a beautiful letter to your MPs asking them to consider this new housing benefit. You can read all about it on their website to get more information. But it's a great way to be part of the solution. Beyond that, if you're looking for some technical training or you want to become a Built for Zero community, uh, check out the website as well. And all you need will be right there at your fingertips. Let's get to today's guest. Um, if you ask me right now, what are two of the biggest things... Um, that's just across Canada, probably in the world, that would help to prevent and end homelessness. It is, of course, a whole bunch of affordable housing, accessible housing, deeply affordable housing. That takes time, and we may not do that quickly. But what could make a bigger difference if it was done really, really quick would be some type of income support. Right now, what we see at Blue Door, our clients that are receiving social assistance might get $720 a month if they're receiving disability assistance about $1,200 a month, but the average one-bedroom apartment in New York region is about $2,000, similar across the GTA, uh, a little down, a little up across Canada, maybe in the west of Vancouver, even a little higher than that. The gap is huge, uh, and something needs to be done about that. During uh, the pandemic, we had CERB, and we said the benchmark was about $2,000 a month to help people get by, uh, and that was the amount. So, so why? We're looking at social assistance rates that are below, I believe, what they were in 1995 when they were cut and they never uh, never came back all that strong. So we need to take a look at that. So we have two amazing people, experts in their fields on the show today. We have Moe uh, Tabara, who's a policy advisor at Matri and, and one of the authors of this Welfare in Canada report we're going to speak to. And we have Jennifer Laley, who is uh, a consultant at Matri and also the other co-lead on this paper. Jennifer and Moe, welcome to the show. Hi, Thank Michael. for having us. Great to have you both here. So we ask everyone the same question. It's a little different for everyone because it's a very personal question, if you don't mind. And that is, what does home mean to you? We'll start with Mohi and then we'll go to Jennifer. Thank you for the question. Um, I, When I think of home, I think of, of safety and comfort, you know, a place of security where uh, you can be yourself without any scrutiny. Uh, and, you know, at Maytree, we focus a lot on, on the right to housing. That's one of our, our two main areas with income security. But, you know, as many have experienced and as I have experienced myself, not all housing is a home, although housing in itself can, you know, is, is a privilege. But, you know, hopefully we can create the security and this comfort for more people in Canada. Well said, Jennifer. I just, I got to tell you, Michael, I love that we're starting with this question because it's really great in the context of what we're talking about today. Um, well, first, I just wanted to acknowledge that I make my home on the unceded traditional territory of the Snunamuk First Nation here in BC on the West Coast. And to me, home means, uh, you know, somewhere secure and safe, somewhere warm, somewhere where, uh, where it's the sort of physical foundation of living my life. Um, 
And the report that we're talking about today, what it reveals really is that there are, is that people who receive social assistance in Canada are pretty much universally struggling to have that kind of foundation and that kind of home. Um, and that's because, as you were mentioning, because of the very low incomes that they get from what is supposed to be a key part of Canada's uh, social safety net. Absolutely. And, and well put. And we can't wait to dive into that report. Before we do, Jennifer, we're going to start with you. Can you just share a little bit about your journey into the work that you do now? Sure. Um, in terms of the Welfare in Canada report that we're talking about today, I've been researching and writing this report since 2020, uh, after I moved back to BC from Toronto. And what I was doing there, it's kind of a logical extension from the work I was doing there. Um, which was I was, be, I was a policy analyst and an advocate on social assistance and other income security programs at a legal clinic for about 12 years. And in that work, I worked really closely with people receiving social assistance, um, legal experts, policy analysts and advocates from other organizations uh, and government officials and politicians. And the work that we were doing was trying to improve the income security programs that low-income people, particularly in Ontario, but also across Canada, rely on. And, you know, my takeaway from that work was, uh, besides just how deeply inadequate social assistance incomes are, um, is that addressing the problem of social assistance, of poverty and social assistance, basically, is really a critical part of the efforts to reduce poverty and end poverty, and by extension, um, you know, addressing the homelessness crisis that we have in Canada. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, Moe, tell us a little bit about your background. Uh, yeah, thank you. Uh, so I lead Matri's work on income security. Uh, I most notably am the co one of the co-authors of Welfare in Canada with Jennifer and the author of Matri's other flagship reports, uh, Social Assistance Summaries, which is a companion report that looks at um, the the number of cases and beneficiaries of social assistance across Canada. Um, so to tell you a bit more about, about Maytree itself, it's a charitable organization dedicated to advancing systemic solutions to poverty. And we undertake our work from a human rights-based approach, which means that we believe that everyone in Canada should have their economic and social rights safeguarded and protected. Uh, in terms of the policy work that we do, it, it, it's two main areas, um, the income security work that I lead and then housing. Um, which are very often two sides of the same coin. Uh, in, in terms of how I came to this work myself, I've I've had the opportunity to work in different social policy areas uh, in my career, from you know housing and education and criminal justice, etc. And a lot of the the issues are rooted in poverty because we don't give people the the right conditions to to succeed and to to live. Uh, you know, a life of dignity and to, to live their full potential. So uh, it's definitely a, you know, a privilege for me to do this work and to help illuminate the situation of social assistance recipients uh, across Canada. And, and I, for one, am so glad that you are doing this work, Mohi um, and Jennifer. Now let's talk about the 2021 Welfare in Canada report. Uh, what was the report's purpose and how did it come about? So I'll take a shot at answering this. The, um, so the 2021 edition of Welfare in Canada is part of a series. It's an annual report that um, continues a publication that was started in the mid-1980s by the National Council of Welfare. 
And for those who have been doing this work for a long time, you'll recognize that name. It was a federal advisory body to the minister that um, basically took the pulse of poverty and low income in Canada. Um, unfortunately, the council was shut down. Um, and after that, the Caledon Institute of Social Policy started up the Welfare in Canada series in order to keep the, the, the data available, in order to collect the data and keep the data available. Because it's, uh, you know, it's important information. And then Maitri took over the work um, a few years later. And the methodology in the report is the same as it was uh, in the mid-80s. So we really can look at trends across about 35 years, which is really helpful. Um, the, so the report presents the total incomes of, for example, households who qualify for social assistance benefits in each of Canada's provinces and territories in any given year, and as I say, over time since 1985. Um, and when, when we say welfare income, what we mean is the total income of households who qualify for social assistance. So it includes the social assistance benefits as well as provincial or territorial and federal benefits and refundable tax credits. So things like child benefits are included, the GST credit, sales tax credits, um, and other benefits depending on what's available in that jurisdiction. Um, the four households are a single person with no dependents who is deemed able to work by the program rules, a single person with no dependents who qualifies as a person with a disability, a single parent with one child, and a couple with two children. And so what we do is we present the total amount of income that these households get from all those government sources, and we assume that they're not working. So there's no employment income uh, that's counted in our calculations. And then we do an analysis that shows how their incomes have changed over time. And that's since the mid 1980s. We also do an analysis of the total incomes in terms of how they stack up against uh, measures of adequacy. So how, you know, are these incomes, do these incomes um, get people over the poverty line, the official poverty line in Canada? And we'll talk about that a little bit more, but, um, and we do that analysis of adequacy over time as well, so that we can say whether incomes have become more or less adequate relative to the poverty line over the last 20 years. And the report also talks about um, a few eligibility rules for social assistance in each province or territory. And we've got an appendix that talks about whether benefits are separate for basic needs and for shelter or whether they're combined. And also an appendix that shows which benefits are indexed to inflation and which aren't. And um, we'll talk about index indexing more, but what that means is whether benefits increase regularly according to increases in the cost of living. Some jurisdictions um, index their social assistance benefits, and so those benefits increase as costs rise, and that helps protect against a loss of purchasing power. So there's a lot in the report. <laughs> yeah, yeah, lot, lots, lots to break down. Uh, well, he anything to add to that? Uh, no, uh, Jennifer gave a good overview. Okay, good, good. All right, well, let's dive into it because um, there's lots to, to chat about. Um, let's talk about some of the key learnings. I know there's a lot there, but what, what are some of the key ones that stuck out to you? Yeah, so as uh, Jennifer mentioned, uh, you know, there are different elements in the report, and I would I would say maybe the the two uh, main findings usually every year is the modeling of how much can um, 
different types of households receive from different sources of income supports, including social assistance, and then the adequacy, which means how does it stack up relative to measures of poverty or low income? Uh, and so in terms of adequacy, in Canada, there are three measures. Um, there's the low income measure, there's the LICO, and the market basket measure, which uh, in the last few years has become Canada's official poverty measure. And in the report, we focus on the, the latter one since it's become the, the metric that's used across, you know, by, the, by governments themselves. And the market basket measure is a measure of poverty, but there's also a measure of deep poverty, which is 75% of the market basket measure. And what that means is that if someone lives below that 75%, that means that they can't meet their basic needs, such as how, housing and food, but also medicine. And it means that they definitely don't have uh, any additional income that can be used for, for other purposes. Um, the, the MBM is, is regional. So there's 50, I believe over 50 regions across the country, but we use the one for the largest cities um, since it's often the, the, the highest um, bar although not always uh and the you know the the in the last report which is the 2021 edition of the report that was published in 2022 um the unfortunately the adequacy of welfare incomes across the country is rather grim um and we can look at, at each household the the household that is often the worst off is the unattached house unattached singles considered employable, where in all 10 provinces, they live in deep poverty and not just deep poverty, but well below deep poverty. I believe the highest percentage, um, you know, relative to the official poverty line is in Quebec, which was at 60%, which is well below the 75%. Um, unattached singles um, with disabilities are also um, living in deep poverty except for two households. Uh, one is in uh, Alberta for people receiving AISH and uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, where, and, and those two households are in poverty, although not in deep poverty. I should note though that um, the market basket measure is not the best measure for people with disabilities because it often doesn't uh, include um, elements that people with disabilities may need that other households may not. Um, and, and of course, the experience of people with disabilities varies depending on the disability and the needs related to the disability. Uh, households with children fare a bit better in the provinces um, for the, so we look at the, the single parent with one child and seven of, of the 10 are in deep poverty, which means that three live above the deep poverty line. And um, in, for the two children households, two of them uh, live above deep poverty, but still in poverty. So in total in the provinces, uh, there are only five households out of 41 that are above the deep poverty line. Um, another um, development this year uh, is the creation of the Northern market, market, market Basket Measure, sorry, for Yukon and Northwest Territories, which allowed us for the first time to look at the adequacy of uh, welfare incomes in the territories. Um, and what it showed is uh, 
one of the one household which is the unattached single uh with disability in the northwest territories was living above the poverty line so it's the only household in all of canada that that um that lives above the poverty line and in general the the households in the territories fare a bit better they are generally above the depoverty line but they do live in poverty um so usually every year when when we complete the report that that's often the main finding that i look towards and um, so as we can see in you know there's still a lot of work to do to make uh so in, to make uh, income supports sufficient for people and um so um a second learning that we can take from the report um besides the inadequacy and well and it kind of stems from the issue of inadequacy really you know, given that, that as Mohi was just saying, like the vast majority of households that we look at in 2021 were living in poverty, um, all but one were living in poverty and the vast majority were living in deep poverty. Um, uh, uh, an interesting um, finding uh, in, in, given, that, uh, given that case is that most of the jurisdictions that we looked at did not make any substantive increases to the already inadequate social assistance benefits, so the, the base benefits that people uh, have access to in, in 2021. Um, in most cases, there were no increases to basic benefits, and there are only there were only three jurisdictions in which basic benefits were actually indexed to inflation in 2021. So in three of 13 jurisdictions, uh, only three of 13 jurisdictions did social assistance-based benefits increase by the rate of inflation. Um, and there were, well, there were three others that increased benefits simply because of an investment in increases. So of the 13 jurisdictions, only six jurisdictions provided increases. Uh, and in many instances, inflation was a factor. So those increases were uh, kind of um, cancelled out by the, the higher rate of inflation in 2021. Um, another important part of the 2021 story, though, is the loss of COVID-related benefits that were available to families and uh, to households in 2020. And, you know, there was a report released this morning by First Call here in BC about child poverty, showing that child poverty in BC decreased from 18% in 2019 to 13% in 2020. And the authors of that report um, directly attribute the additional COVID-related supports that were available to, to families and households in 2020. Um, but most of those benefits were not available in 2021. And for the households that we look at, the households on social assistance, we saw a really big difference in terms of declines in total welfare incomes in 2021 in the vast majority of cases. So people receiving social assistance um, in 2021 were actually worse off uh, than they were in 2020 as a result of the loss of those benefits. You know, some, some jurisdictions, I should say, some jurisdictions are really trying to make headway on social assistance incomes by increasing their benefit amounts. And we can look at in 2021, um, PEI in Nova Scotia, but also BC and um, the, the jurisdictions that have inflationary indexing, so New, New Brunswick, Quebec, and Yukon. Um, 
we're seeing that this uh, in 2022 as well. And I'm just starting to gather, I've just been gathering the data for the 2022 report. There are a number of provinces and territories who are recognizing the hardship of the increase, um, you know, the much higher inflation in 2022. Um, but rather than increasing base benefits, they're mostly choosing to provide uh, one-off, one-time, relatively small payments instead. And we know, you know, looking back at the 2021 experience and the 2020 experience, um, these one-time payments are really helpful, but uh, they're really not sufficient to address the already low, very low benefit rates that social assistance programs provide. So we're going to see, you know, we could probably see uh, increases again in 2022, but then what's going to happen in 2023 if those benefits aren't continued? Yeah, I mean, I, I think when we look at 2020, sometimes there'll be an asterisk because, you know, of, of the circumstances around that. But um, exactly. you know, just what you mentioned, what, what can we learn from that? When you do invest, you see those rates drop down. It's simply just a, a dollar amount. It's, it, it's income, right, going forward. And and all those things that you mentioned, I mean, it's, it's deeply disturbing. As Canadians, we should be disturbed by that. Um, when we want people to realize human right to housing, uh, in theory, that, that's great. But, you know, simply put, if the dollars aren't there, it's very, very tough to do. Now, let's talk about, you've been doing this work a long time. Every year you do it. Um, let's talk about some of the trends that you're seeing and maybe some of the things that surprised you in the 2021 report. Who do you want to go first? <laughs> go ahead and jump in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll go. Um so first, I was struck in 2021, and I'm always struck by just how low welfare incomes are. You know, we've been talking about the exploding cost of housing for years. Um, here where I live, it's all, almost a daily point of conversation, how hard it is to find decent, affordable housing. And, you know, I think about how much it costs to rent a place and how little incomes are for people receiving social assistance, especially for, as Mohi said, for single people. Um, and I think about how all of those numbers in our reports represent the reality of actual real people across this country who are struggling to make it um, from day to day. And, uh, you know, it's disturbing that our analysis shows that things really haven't changed very much for the majority of people over the past 20 years. Um, for most of the households that we look at, they're still living at about the same depth of poverty as they did two decades ago. And so that's, um, sh you know, maybe not surprising, but certainly shocking. And um, I guess, secondly, I'm struck by just how little the federal government provides to unattached single households in all jurisdictions. And as we've said already, uh, we're, what, you know, who we're talking about is single people who have no spouse or common law partner and have no children. Um, and uh, benefits, so for when we look at the total incomes of those folks, benefits that they get from their province or territory that they live in made up between, in 2021, made up between 92 and 99% of welfare incomes. So we're talking about, you know, social assistance-based benefits and any provincial or, or territorial tax credits that they might receive. Um, so federal benefits make up only, made up only between one and 8% of their incomes. And we know that those social assistance benefits and tax credits are very low. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we can see that there are really no meaningful federal benefits that are provided to people of working age who don't have children. 
they get the GST credit from the federal government, and that's really about it. Um, now, you know, the federal government, of course, does really contribute fairly significantly to low-income households who do have children, and that's through the Canada Child Benefit. But their contribution to low-income people who don't have pretty children, sorry, who don't have children is really pretty minuscule. And, you know, it's shocking because, uh, and surprising, because for a government that has a poverty reduction strategy and has um, poverty reduction targets that they want to meet, um, it's shocking that there isn't a larger contribution to the incomes of people on social assistance in Canada by the federal government. Uh, we know that people receiving social assistance make up about 35 to 40% of people living in poverty in Canada. So uh, if we want to make significant headway on reducing poverty in Canada, we need to address the incomes of those folks who are on social assistance. We know that um, uh, people who are on social assistance make up about 51% of people receiving support from food banks. And um, as I say, you know, if the federal government wants to make a meaningful, uh, meaningful headway on poverty in Canada, they really need to step up for low-income working-age adults who don't have children. So those are my surprises from the 2021 report. Cool. Thanks, Jennifer. Mohi, anything to add? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with everything Jennifer said, but I, I'd, also, I'd also mention what, what you said before about one-time measures, because in the 2021 edition of the report, we sort of saw, the, the in a way, the consequences of, of what happens after, you know, because in 2020 we 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 had the one-time measures and the the you know the situation of people improved slightly their adequacy improved but then in 2021 when you take it away you see the drop and because the need is so great uh pe people are that much worse off and you know i i, I was quite you know taken by how how significant the um, the impact is on some people uh, and on some households so you know it would be ideal and preferable going forward if instead of one-time measures to recognize the needs of people and to to commit to longer-term income security measures that are sustained so that people can expect that money instead of you know getting it ad hoc depending on you know what the government thinks at, at a certain time Construct, a social enterprise by Blue Door, provides high-quality residential and commercial construction and property services in the greater Toronto area. More than a business with a heart, Construct is a real solution to preventing and ending homelessness. Through its eight-week paid skills trades training program, complete with wraparound supports and on-the-job work experience, Construct lifts people out of poverty and into opportunity. To hire Construct for your next project, or learn more about Construct's employment program, visit constructgta.ca. Thank you for that. And thank you both. Such interesting stuff to unpack. I, I think, you know, we're, we're hearing all this information. You know, there are some solutions. I think, Jennifer, you, you talked about the federal government stepping up. I mean, does, does one of those solutions, when I think of what's happened with childcare, with a national, you know, uh, push on that, with every province having an agreement, the, the province is matching up on that. When I think of what's happened with healthcare just recently with a 10-year deal for healthcare, is that, that something we can look at? You know, a 10-year deal with all the provinces and territories around um, that, that universal basic income? What are, what are some of the solutions or answers here? Because something's got to give. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, you're right that we can look to the federal government. There is the Canada Social Transfer, so they the federal government can certainly uh, help support uh, people living in social assistance by uh, you know, providing some money to to the provinces and territories to provide higher uh, uh, income benefits to social assistance recipients. Uh, I should say that there, there are a number of, of uh, other measures that have been discussed recently. Of course, there's, you know, the jurisdictions could choose to increase the benefits themselves. I think that would be ideal. And some of them have been choosing to do that, although the pace of the increases is, is rather minute relative to the need. Even with the increases, it, it's nowhere near the scale that's needed to, for people to live an adequate standard of living. Um, in terms of other potential solutions, uh, recently in Parliament, uh, there, there's been uh, the Bill C C22 on the Canada Disability Benefit. And although we, we don't know how, what that will look like, because that will be determined in the regulation stage, it, can ha it, it has the potential to increase um, the adequacy of income supports for people living with disabilities, which make up a large proportion of people living in deep poverty in Canada. Um, but, you know, advocates and, and people in the sector will have to wor work with the government and, and encourage the government to make sure that the CDB addresses uh, the poverty of, of uh, people with disabilities and that, that it's not tied to labor. Because very often in Canada, when we talk about income supports, it's in the context of encouraging people to work, but it doesn't recognize that some people can't work or that they may need more support to be able to, to work. Um, and uh, more recently, in, in the fall of 2022, Maitri published a report with uh, CFCC on uh, the enhancement of the Canada Workers' Benefit into a Canada Working Age Supplement. So, and for those who don't know, the, the Canada Workers' Benefit is a, is a federal refundable tax credit. Um, and it's the most generous of the, the three refundable tax credits that, that are generally available to people. But it's not accessible to people receiving social assistance with no labor market detachment because you need to earn at least $3,000 a year to receive it. And so we are, we recommend, we're rec in this enhancement, we recommend that the government create a foundational support of about uh, $3,000 uh, that is accessible to people with, people uh, receiving social assistance. Uh, and as well, it would have a, a $1,000 uh, employment boost for a maximum of $4,000. And we, we've modeled that and it would uh, definitely improve the uh, the adequacy of uh, for, for people, for unattached singles, uh, both considered employable and with disabilities. Yeah, and I, uh, I would just add that if, you know, if people are looking for um, for advocacy points, for example, uh, uh, around um, how to improve incomes for people on social assistance. Um, as Mohi has already said, there's, you know, there's a number of pieces. Um, they should be pushing for higher social assistance benefits in their jurisdiction, um, higher tax delivered benefits and credits. So those should be increased in jurisdictions where they exist and created in jurisdictions where they don't exist. I mean, there are some provinces and territories that don't have child benefits, for example. 
uh, or you know don't have a low income tax credit. So those are some you know pieces that that uh, that folks could be looking to and advocating around. They should also be asking um, for benefits to be indexed annually. Uh, as I said earlier, there's only three jurisdictions um, in 2021 that had indexing. There have been more since then. Uh, but most benefits for low-income people are not indexed to the rate of inflation. And we're going to really see the impact of that in 2022 um, once that report comes out because inflation was you know, up around, well, I mean, depending on what we're looking at, we're looking at very high rates of inflation that, uh, that significantly impact the purchasing power of the incomes for people on social assistance that are, as we've already said, are already extremely low. So indexing really needs to be part of the package. Um, and uh, I know that there are um, a, a number of really interesting proposals that some organizations are talking about, about how to improve the Canada Child Benefit for particular populations, particularly. So, uh, you know, the federal government could be looking at those as well. And my, as Mohi's already said, my, um, my big, uh, uh, the bell that I like to ring a lot is the Canada Social Transfer uh, you know, as you said, Michael, there are these agreements happening between the provinces and the feds on other issues. And we really need to, uh, you know, we already have a, a mechanism by which the federal government can contribute to social assistance um, incomes to increasing those incomes. And that's the Canada social transfer. So, you know, putting more money into the Canada social transfer and, and reaching agreements with the provinces and territories about how they spend that money. In other words, spend it to increase the incomes of folks on social assistance uh, would be really, really helpful. Um, but we can't lose sight of the fact that governments also need to invest in the kinds of basic supports and services that would really reduce the cost of living. So, you know, deeply affordable housing. We really need to, you know, we have dropped the ball in Canada, as you and your listeners well know, for many decades on uh, on the on affordable housing and uh, governments need to get back into the business of providing deeply affordable housing. We're seeing the impacts of that every day in the services that your organization provides and on you know the streets and the and the and the spare bedrooms and couches all across Canada. Um, you know, improving access to um, affordable, healthy food, ensuring a wide uh, range of needed healthcare expenses are covered. So. There's a lot of, as Mohi says, there's a lot of work to be done, but there are many, many uh, places where um, governments can make investments that would really make a big difference. Absolutely, there are. I mean, we had, uh, we've had Neil Hetherington, who runs the Daily Bread Food Bank in Toronto on quite a few times. They do their Who's Hungry report. And in their 2022 report, they were talking about, and I'm sure you'll see this as you gather info, or you might already be seeing this. It's, it's just a different type of person, a, a different type of user now that's going to, you see more middle-income earners going to the food bank because of those, those you know, uh, the cost of living. You mentioned there not being indexed. Inflation hits are most vulnerable, even worse. Um, and so you're seeing more and more people who, because they're spending so much more on housing, there's nothing left over. I think they say the average food bank user has $8 left over. This is in Ontario. Uh, once they're they're done paying for housing, uh, housing costs. Uh, and uh, Black and Indigenous individuals using the food bank have $6 left over after paying for everything, right? I mean, uh, and many, many, I think there's 12% that, that absolutely have nothing. 
Uh, and and Neil will always say, he's like, the answer is not more food banks, folks. Like, let's not step up the food bank yet. Um, but it is around income and truly affordable housing. And as you said, Jennifer, I mean, this, you know, began in, in the 80s, uh, really ramped up in the 90s due to bad policy choices. Um, so we've got to make some good choices now. We have to rapidly um, ramp up our social housing and access to it. Uh, but but honestly, I think, you know, that that takes time. I think there's some measures mm -hmm. that they could do immediately with these transfers that would make a huge difference. We've seen uh, in, in BC, there is uh, a group for social change that did the cash transfer project. It was $7,500 to a bunch of people. So it's basically almost doubling what a, a single person would earn on social assistance in most places, a little less. But just in doing that, never heard from it again. We're able to get housed. We're uh, you know, using alcohol and drugs less. Right. I mean, uh, and yeah. so they had more money there. Some were saving money. It was it was really incredible. And that's a small sample. And they're ramping that up as well uh, out in um, out in Newfoundland. I know Sheldon Paul and his team are doing some work with youth where they're they're working with uh, social assistance teams to bend some of those rules a little bit about working that they could keep more of their income. Part of what when Sheldon was telling us when he came on uh, on the podcast was that some people are really scared to come off of the benefits because it's hard to get back on, especially around disability. So if I do this, I work, if something goes sideways, you know, I'm going to lose that. And then I'm going to be in real trouble again. Um, so they're, they're making it easy and working through that uh, in Ontario right now. They're, they're talking about a total revamp of social assistance, but they're not really talking about dollars here. They're talking about how it's delivered and, and the ways there we know that in Ontario, there's a 5% increase this year. I think, for, just for ODSP, not for right. Ontario Works, social yeah. assistance. And when that, that came to about, what, $42 a month? I mean, this is not life-changing money that needs to happen. I really, I, I think if we look at it, and correct me if I'm wrong, in most cases, we're looking at a doubling of these incomes or benefits to really make a sizable impact, are we not? If not more than that. Yeah, exactly. There's. Go ahead, Mohi. Uh, no, I... I mean, as as I mentioned, especially for an attached singles, the the amounts are, you know, less than in in some places less than half of the market basket measure, which is the, you know the measure of poverty. So if you're at below half and you double, you're still below the poverty line. Um, and 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 I think it, it's it's unfortunate that so many people have to go through hoops to 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 receive their income support and. Um, there has to be reform there as well in how we treat people and how we, and destigmatizing uh, income support because I mean this is the state of of the economy right now where people are fighting themselves in these situations and we shouldn't judge them and the government should provide the support with more dignity and more respect. Definitely, and and I just wanted to add another quick piece, which is um, you know I was really struck the other day I was looking at a report that talked about. <laughs> Uh, the loss of fiscal um, uh, space by governments over the last 20, 30 years. I think that they said that corporate tax cuts over the last 20 years have resulted in a loss of $1.1 trillion in public monies that could uh, otherwise be going to spending on the kinds of supports and services that people need. You know, um, there, there seems to be... Uh, 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 kind of a, a bit of 
uh, mass amnesia about <laughs> about remembering where how we got to this place um, with the variety of uh, really uh, bad situations that we find ourselves in in terms of um, government uh, investment in social housing, in terms of investment in healthcare, in terms of investment in the social supports that people need, in terms of investment in uh, income supports. And we need to recognize that a lot of the crunch that we're uh, seeing right now is, as you say, Michael, not just from um, bad policy choices, but also giving away our fiscal capacity. Uh, if we don't have the money to spend, we don't have the money to spend. So we need to be looking at, uh, you know, and, and, and have we, uh, we need to be questioning whether or not those tax giveaways have actually resulted in the kind of society that, uh, and the kind of economy really, that, uh, that, those, that, that, that was promised when those tax cuts were made. We really need to look at um, the revenue side of the equation and whether or not governments have enough money to spend uh, and what sources they're getting that money from. Because, you know, as we've been saying, if we're going to be doubling or more social assistance incomes, we need to find that money from somewhere. Yeah, that's well said. And that's something that everyone thinks about. It's, there's got to be mechanisms around it. And I think quite often when people salivate at tax cuts, uh, they don't realize the implications of that tax cut, that extra tiny little bit of money that might go to your bottom line, what it does to society as a whole. Uh, and it's really hard to walk that back. I mean, I, in a city, I live in Toronto and, and for years, you know, um, even Mississauga right now, we, you know, uh, Mayor McCallion passed away and, and her big thing was, you know, low, low taxes forever, no increases in taxes. And, you know, if you asked her later in, in her later years, it, she'd say that was a bit of a mistake. It made people happy. It got her reelected. But what did it do to the infrastructure, the dollars coming in to pay for all that, right? So I think we, we do need your, it's a great point around um, or the income sources for uh, federal governments and, and uh, provincial governments, all governments. Now, are there examples of countries that are doing this well that we can look to to say, you know, that's what we should aspire to. Like, this is working well. And, and am I safe to assume too, for, for naysayers might say, uh, well, it's going to cost too much. On the flip end of that, if you're investing in the social welfare of people, are you saving a ton of money too on hospitalization and, and all the different pieces that, that follows when you, when you don't invest in people? So a bit of a layered question, but open to your thoughts. That's um, So the comparative analysis is not something that we do uh, in this report or others. So I don't, I can't really um, point to, and maybe Mohi's got some good examples, point to other jurisdictions in the world that are doing this better. But I can say that, um, you know, from, from the, the, the um, kind of uh, discussions that I've had with folks who do do that kind of work, you know, a real key is, as we've just been saying, is uh, ensuring that governments have enough revenue to be able to spend on uh, social priorities. So, um, you know, in jurisdictions where there are higher taxation rates, um, they do a, a better job at, uh, you know, spending on the kinds of um, income supports and other kinds of supports that people living there need. Um, Mohi, did you have, do you have any other info about that part of the question? In terms of other jurisdictions, I, 
I don't think there's an example that stands out in, in particular that I would say, you know, that's the model that we need to follow, that Canada needs to follow. And I, sh I should also note that, you know, um, social safety nets and tax systems are different in, in other countries. And even if there's a system that looks a bit different, sometimes the adapting to that type of system would require a very large, um, you know, cost of, of transfer. So, I mean, in, in Canada, we, In a way, we do have um, we have a structure that we can build on. It's it's more that we haven't chosen to build on it for a very long time, and we've sort of neglected it for a long time. But um, yeah, not that I've seen. Uh, I mean, maybe others have done this work, but not for me personally. And um, in terms of the other part of your question about uh, you know. Investing in uh, social supports results in um, lower costs in other areas. That's definitely true. I don't have the numbers uh, immediately to hand, but um, there was a report I remember by, ooh, was it Daily Bread? I can't remember. Um, back in the, oh, this has got to be 15 years ago maybe, um, that said that uh, poverty cost, I think that they still, they still may do this report, At that time, poverty was costing $6 billion a year or something like that um, in, in, in other associated costs. So, you know, if we, if, well, and, and we can see the, the impacts of not spending, as I was saying earlier, like all around us all the time. I mean, especially in terms of the crisis in, in homelessness and the crisis in mental health supports. Um, If people are given the kinds of supports that they that all of us need, um, you know, if there's a basic level of dignity that uh, all of us can rely on through uh, the through social provision, uh, benefit programs, housing programs, um, mental health supports, uh, you know, all of us will be better off. We wouldn't be seeing the kinds of difficulty that people are uh, having on our streets and uh, all across this country. Uh, we wouldn't be seeing the same kind of health impacts. So, yeah, I mean, as I say, I don't have the numbers to support that right at my right at at at, uh, at my fingertips. But it's not you. You don't have to look far to see the impacts of the lack of uh, social spending in Canada. Uh, on that question in particular, uh, you know, in, in, in different areas of social policy, we, we talk about social determinants, especially social determinants of health, mm. social determinants of justice. And, and these are a number of determinants that, that um, you know, help predict or help us understand the particular situation of a person. And very often, one of the one of the determinants and one of the major determinants is income, and it is, uh, you know, uh, the adequacy of your income. So, of course, if if you can't afford food, you can't afford medicine, your your health will decline, and that becomes a cost on the healthcare system, which you could have prevented ahead. And it's just it's not just preventing the the cost to the healthcare system; it's also preventing the unneeded suffering that a person. has experienced to end up in the healthcare system. And it's the same thing with the criminal justice system where people don't find ways to sustain themselves and or are criminalized for being poor and they find themselves in the criminal justice system. Um, so, so definitely uh, 
we, I feel like in this country, we need to, to have a bit more data about how exactly the and, and the actual numbers in terms of the costs of how much poverty has cost Canada, you know, further up the chain that could have been prevented and could have, you know, saved money to, to you know, improve the quality of life of Canadians and people in Canada in general. Uh, absolutely. To what you're both saying, when you mentioned the word prevention there, um, for the past few years, I mean, Dr. Stephen Gates from the Canadian Observatory on Homelessness, uh, Melanie Redmond from Away Home Canada, and, and many others have been pushing the pushing prevention, saying that we, we keep reacting to all these problems, and it's great to patch it up and stop the flow, but if you don't actually go upstream and look at the systems that are broken, well, you talked about some of them, criminal justice system, child welfare system, different systems that are broken mm -hmm. that are actually launching people right into poverty and homelessness. You're never really going to end it, right? So we've got to sink some dollars investment into prevention. Uh, and Jennifer, I think, and it's an old number now, a few years back, they're saying homelessness costs can Canadians $7 billion a year. I would venture it's around 10 by this point, because that's an old number. But yeah, I mean, there's already a huge cost there. If we could take half of that, and, and prevent homelessness and poverty or reduce poverty greatly. Uh, you know, not only would you save money, you save lives, which is important work. Listen, uh, we could talk about this report for a long, long time, um, but I, I would encourage people, it's it's a super informative report and one that will come out each year. And we'd love to have you back every year to talk about our learnings. And maybe one year we'll say, wow, we're, we're really, really surprised. Uh, things are turning around, I'm, I'm hopeful. But if people want to check out this report, where where can they go? Yeah, I, and I agree with you. I, every year, I when I when I we do the modeling, I'm always I always hope that things look better, but I'm often disappointed, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, so, in terms of uh, the report, you can find it on Matri's website. It's available on its entirety, free of charge. Uh, there's a profile for every jurisdiction, every province and territory, and as well as an all Canada section that that's a comparison across the entire country. And we also produce a policy brief called Interpreting Data, Interpreting the Data, Key Takeaways from Welfare in Canada, which uh, provides more analysis and recommendations on the Welfare in Canada report. Um, and I encourage you to, to check out Maitri's work in general. We do a lot of work on income security, on housing. We have a great podcast and event series called uh, Five Good Ideas as well as um, Maitri Policy School, which is a great resource. Um, and if, if you're interested in the report I mentioned earlier about the Canada Working Age Supplement, uh, you'll can find how to reduce the depth of single adult poverty in Canada, proposal for a Canada Working Age Supplement on our website as well. Yeah, I, I, I thank you for uh, for that. I encourage people to go to Maitri's website. I mean, the, the depth of information for um, organizations like mine, you make it so simple to not only access the, the data, but to interpret it and use it and, and make it useful. Um, and, and that's what we're always asked for. I mean, the first question when I got into the um, homelessness sector in 2010 was, well, how many? How many people are we mm -hmm. talking about here? What, show me the numbers. Show me, well, you know, how are we gonna make a difference? And we had access to none of that. And that's changed, thankfully, over time. Uh, and now we know, you know, what is the problem? What is the, the depth of the pro? And you're showing that. You're showing this through your work. Um, this is truly, truly important um, stuff. You're highlighting uh, welfare in Canada. People have to understand and wrap their heads around it. And with that, that data, hopefully that becomes power to make real change happen. 
Let's hope, and let's hope next year we're going to be having a different conversation. We we can't think of that. Maybe not. It's been a been a tough tough year with inflation uh, for our most vulnerable. But let, let's uh, keep talking about it and sharing that information, more awareness and education, and that's what this podcast is all about. That we deliver. Uh, the faster things can change. Mohit, Jennifer, thank you for the work you do. Truly grateful. And thank you for taking the time of your busy schedules to join us on the podcast. Oh, thank, thank you. you, Michael. Thank you for having us. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, you're going to hear me talk about this uh, almost too much um, on this podcast, but uh, listen, income matters. The gap is huge and is growing. In Ontario, we're talking about uh, people, social assistance rates that are lower than they were in 1995. I can't even remember that far back. Imagine your income hadn't changed since 1995. Uh, crazy, but it hasn't. Uh, and you heard Mohi say, even if we doubled it, they'd still be below the poverty line. Think of that. Doubling it still below the poverty line. Unacceptable. We shouldn't accept this as Canadians. If you want to do something about it, right now I'd encourage you to go to caeh.ca, look at their housing benefit, uh, there's an easy way to send a letter off to your MP and push them to make this an issue across Canada. You heard Jennifer talk about that, do the service transfer. Uh, love that. That's what needs to happen here. We've seen it happen. It can happen. It's happened with health. It's happened with child care. Let's make it happen with poverty uh, and, and housing. Let's push this forward. It's up to you and I, listener. Thanks so much for joining. Please share this podcast widely, and we'll see you next time on The Way Home. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcasts wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.